your host, Dr. Jay Feldstein, and today we're talking with Dr. Howard Comiskey about his research on Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Comiskey is a professor of neuroscience, pharmacology, and physiology at PCOM Georgia. Dr. Comiskey has a strong background in neuroscience, aging, pharmacology, toxicology, and astrocyte research. For the past decade, he has been investigating a rat astrocyte model to study signaling mechanisms involved in age-related neurologic disorders and environmental toxicants. Ten of his refereed journal publications were on the age-related effects of drugs. He has focused on several aspects of drug research, specifically on drugs of abuse and aging. He has successfully competed for state and national funding from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the National Institute on Aging, the National Institute of Neurologic Diseases and Stroke, and the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. Dr. Kamiski graduated from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin, with a PhD in pharmacology and a minor in medical science physiology. He also earned his master's degree in pharmacology and a bachelor's degree in chemistry and math from the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Kamiski was a diplomat of the American Board of Toxicology from 1987 to 2016. He is also a member of the Society for Neuroscience, the Society of Toxicology, and the American Society for Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics. In addition, he teaches Tai Chi. Welcome, Dr. Kamiski. Well, thank you. That was very nice. I've got a couple questions for you. Okay. Why is it so challenging to find an effective treatment for Alzheimer's disease? With Alzheimer's disease, we basically need a biomarker, one that's validated, you know, similar to what they have with diabetes, where you look at the glucose levels and you can really say, you know, the glucose levels are too high and you have diabetes. We have to get those under control. Uh, we don't have a really good biomarker that's accepted, that's what they call validated for Alzheimer's disease. So, for example, they have looked at the amyloid plaques, and when they look for those under PET scans, they can't tell you whether it's early Alzheimer's, which can start 30 years before the symptoms show up, or is it late? And so they use that sometimes as an excuse for not coming up with treatment uh, to treat Alzheimer's disease. And so, in fact, if you look at something like uh, glucose levels, consumption by brain cells. Um, that's a better biomarker for Alzheimer's disease. So that's very interesting. B based on your research, what are possible screens for dementia? Well, to go back to measuring the glucose levels, they do PET scans, and they could do it with the amyloid, which would say, yes, there's Alzheimer's disease here. But again, the problem is they can't tell you whether it's early or late. With measuring the glucose levels, the levels of consumption of glucose will go down as the Alzheimer's disease really gets more advanced. So it's a better measure, is it early or late? Um, but that's more recent. And the other thing they do that's looking pretty good is that a lot of people with diabetes develop Alzheimer's disease. It increases your chance like twofold. And if you look at what to, what's going on in these individuals with diabetes, they get what they call insulin resistance. 
So you can look for the insulin resistance substrate in blood and correlate it with Alzheimer's disease. That's what's starting to happen now. Well, we know that you do a lot of research from a toxicology standpoint, and a lot of it's based on the astrocyte. So what is the role of an astrocyte in the brain? So for most of my career, for about 30 years, I, I looked at neurons like everybody else. I did a lot of behavioral research, correlated it with receptor binding. And it wasn't until I started working with metals that I realized astrocytes were playing a major role in the brain. So when I came here about 14 years ago, a couple years later, I started looking at astrocytes because from previous funding, I knew what was destroying parts of the brain right away within a couple of weeks of administering metals were astrocytes. And so I thought, wow, what are these astrocytes doing? And people were arguing, were they really involved in controlling our behavior or not? Um, do they take up transmitters? And the truth is, uh, not only do they take up transmitters, they really accumulate more of the excitatory transmitter, the main one in the brain, glutamate, than the neurons that release it. So they can take up glutamate and release it, and they also are the main one that picks up potassium in your synapses. So basically what I'm saying is that the astrocytes not only feed neurons, break down their products, but they also create a balance in the synapse. They prevent us from having tremors and seizures by taking up potassium, and they also take up um, not only glutamate, but the potassium. That allows us to be able to um, function in a, in a manner without tremors, without seizures. Um, and so it allows us more controlled behavior. So it, that's kind of a short way of saying that they're not only involved in feeding neurons glucose and oxygen, but they use their end feet really the go around capillaries in the brain. So it makes up part of your blood-brain barrier are these fatty end feet from astrocytes. So they're picking up potassium, nutrients, oxygen, and they're bringing it to the neurons. They feed it, and then they also are the source of APOE, which is really the thing that binds amyloid that sometimes is released by neurons in the extracellular fluid. People have looked at these amyloid plaques. Uh, a lot of pharmaceutical companies have tried to develop compounds, antibodies, to get rid of those plaques. And most of, 95% of them have failed. Until recently, you know, currently there's some talk about today in the news that one company has got an antibody that may help, even though originally for months they turned around and said it didn't work. Now they said, well, it's working a little bit. So we'll see. Okay. From your research, what do you believe triggers neurodegenerative disease? How do you think it can be prevented? Okay, so basically what I'm saying is it's a dysfunction of metabolism. So for about 35, 40 years of our life, we need 
metabolism to generate ATP. We need our mitochondria to work. They generate ATP. They can burn up oxygen. And that ATP can be used for energy. And that's helpful as we mature and we get up to about 35, 40. And then after that, you can start to get dysfunctional metabolism as we age. So aging is okay, but you can slow it down. When you get cancer, which is somewhat similar to getting Alzheimer's disease, it may seem strange, but really, in fact, some people get cancer, some people get Alzheimer's. And infrequently, they're both associated with together, especially prostate cancer and Alzheimer's. But other than that, they're usually separate. What they do in cancer is they use these antibiotics. Did you ever hear of rapamycin? Yes. Well, okay, it's FDA approved, and they give it to cancer patients. It extends their life. It's basically working in the mitochondria to inhibit mTOR. So M and then T-O-R, it's mTOR. So if you inhibit that, the cells in the body tend to function better. And so that rapamycin was really found on Easter Island. The natives called it rapador. And rapa, they just used the first four letters, and so they had rapamycin. That is very effective in helping cancer patients live longer. What they're saying is you should use that same compound or its analogs. There's several out there, some of which are also FDA-approved, to maybe treat Alzheimer's disease. Because Alzheimer's disease, you may have too much of this dysfunctional proteins being produced in part by the mitochondria. So instead of generating just ATP, they somehow take these accumulated peptides, alter them, and they start to produce things like Alzheimer's disease at a faster rate. And so if you slow it down, people could live longer with less dysfunction. Does you that talked make sense? About, yeah, it does. And you talked about earlier about potassium uptake, that the astrocytes, you know, kind of help regulate so we don't have tremors and seizures. Do you see a role in this for the treatment or prevention of Parkinson's disease? Oh, yes. Um, so in Parkinson's disease, you get another peptide, not amyloid accumulating. You get alpha-synuclein, which is part of the synaptic vesicle. So those are proteins that help guide the synaptic vesicles and neurons, dopamine neurons. They guide those vesicles to the nerve ending to release dopamine. But for some reason, they start to accumulate. Sometimes they call them Lewy bodies. And so in Parkinson's disease, the astrocytes are very, they're doing the same thing even with neurons that are involved. And dopamine can be reduced. You can get dementia from Parkinson's disease. And there's a big crossover. Many people with Parkinsonism gets Alzheimer's. Many people with Alzheimer's have Parkinsonism. And it's basically this peptide that normally doesn't get replicated, it starts being replicated. And they think those mitochondria are doing it maybe by free radicals being generated. And then these peptides, which normally aren't replicated, become replicated at a faster rate. 
And so rapamycin and some of its analogs could stop that replication. Oh, very good. Well, I know you may have a couple questions for me. Oh, yes. Um, what I was wondering is like currently where I've been working with our biomed program, we have a thesis, a graduate program, and so people can work on a thesis. I have a couple students, sometimes just one, but this year I have two. And in addition, we have uh, medical students. So especially the first year, they can work during the summer and on research projects. And some of these DO students, especially this year, I had some really good ones, and I've had some in the past that are really experienced in the lab, and they contribute greatly. So working with these students helps. But my question for you is, at PCOM, what could the institution do to really help promote research on diseases like Alzheimer's disease? Well, I think first, you know, with uh, Mindy Weinstein being in charge of our institutional research to kind of help decide what research projects get internally funded because we do internally fund a lot of our basic science research. That's a big help because then we know what's going on across every program. You know, I think also whatever we can do to support our researchers and bring in outside grants, you know, we're more than happy to do. And also that, you know, making research a priority in this strategic plan 2025, you know, we realize how important research is, not only from a basic science standpoint, but also for all of our students to be competitive in residency matching, especially in the DO program, how important it is to do research through medical school and their residency. So I, I think we also need to make a better effort with clinical institutions because without having our own hospital where we could do clinical research, translational research, we need to kind of build that into our academic affiliation agreements with some of the larger institutions, not only in Pennsylvania, but in Georgia as well. And I think, you know, we fund the Center for Chronic Disorder of Aging, you know, through Dr. Balin. And I, and I think we need to somehow be able to do more cross-functional research between pharmacology, the basic sciences, biomed, not only, you know, in Philadelphia between departments, but in Georgia as well. And I think just bringing that to the forefront making it a strategic priority will go a long way. Yes, I agree. I think uh, Mindy Weinstein has a great deal of background, and she has the right personality to kind of pull it together. She knows where PCOM's been, and they know she has an understanding of where we can get to uh, to improve our research. But um, And then Dr. Balin has been really very helpful in the past. I know him from dealing with him, and I've been up to Philadelphia, and he's come down here a number of times. He's very social. He's very encouraging. And he has a different approach. I really have been looking more at a metabolic approach. And basically, I came on to that after I realized I had a student who's now up there in Philadelphia. And Jade's her first name. But Jade's grandmother died from a tau disorder, not Alzheimer's. So it wasn't amyloid, it was just tau accumulating. She died from that. That motivated Jade, and she wanted to do some research on it. So that's what really pushed me into looking at tau. But tau kind of accumulates 
about 20 years before the Alzheimer's symptoms get severe, where the amyloid will show up 30 years before it's severe. And see, and before that, that's when your metabolism, around the time you're like 35, 40, is still going too fast. And so those types of insights, Mindy's aware of, uh, Brian Balin's aware of. And so I come from this new idea that the astrocytes are playing a major role, which has been kind of not explored as much, and yet they're very prevalent in the brain. For example, the neurons you have pre- and postsynaptic synapses, right, one-to-one. Astrocytes will synapse with about, in a human, a million synapses. So when they fire, and they can, they don't have electric voltage, they have what they call a calcium wave, they can affect a lot of synapses quickly. And so people have to look into this. So now I do have another question for you. As an emergency room physician, by your training, what do you think people can do to combat the effects of aging? Well, I don't know how much it has to do with my training as an emergency physician because we don't really tend to think of emergency physicians and prevention going hand in hand. But just as a physician in general, in terms of combating effects of aging, most of the literature that I've seen is really do everything you can do to live a healthy lifestyle in terms of exercise, diet, stay mentally active, physically active, take up an instrument, take up a foreign language, continue to read, to be as active as you can. And it appears to me that, you know, through activity and diet and not getting type 2 diabetes, you know, is kind of the, the best way that we know of now is to kind of prevent and combat the effects of aging. If you want to go to some of the literature on calorie restriction, which I know it, it kind of is big in the anti-aging front in terms of, you know, 1,000 calories or intermittent fasting, these are some things that are out there that are popular now. But, I, you know, I think if you look at societies in certain geographies across the world, where people have lived the longest, but are, and not only from a number standpoint, but from a functionality and vitality standpoint, it tends to be people that are socially active, physically active, and then maintain healthy body weights through proper nutrition. I agree with you, but, and I think... Uh, and to eat a lot what, of figs. Uh, well, yes and no, but... I. The big thing is, uh, my wife is uh, half Italian, and she always brags about being Italian ancestry, but she really has this Mediterranean diet. That diet is really similar to what you're saying, is it's low in sugar, and it's careful with the fats they have. So it's less animal fats, more fish, um, chicken. And Olive oil. Olive oil, pig, yes, very true. Olive oil is a biggie in that Mediterranean diet, and even over in Asia they use oils, more so than what we do. There may be something to that because, again, not only is uh, Alzheimer's disease associated with type 2 diabetes, it's also uh, much more common in people who are overweight. And also, interestingly, uh, one of the reasons I think it's probably a metabolic function, maybe with the mitochondria, is remember that women have twice the rate of Alzheimer's that men do, not just because they live longer. Their risk is twice 
the risk of a male. And so you kind of think, okay, is it hormone-related? Yes, we lose estrogen, testosterone with AIDS. Women tend to lose estrogen you know, at a fast rate once they go through menopause. But if you look at the mitochondria, which I say probably are becoming dysfunctional around 45, maybe 50 in some people, that really what's going on is that the genes that are in the mitochondria they come from the mother. Alzheimer's more common in women. So the genes tend to be in the mitochondria from women, from our mother, not from our father. There are a few cases where you do get some male genes in the mitochondria, but they're mainly women. So is the mitochondria really the source of our problem with Alzheimer's too? That's another clue, I think. Women having Alzheimer's more commonly than men. Uh, mitochondria, their DNA source is really from the mother. Uh, that all may come into really one of the reasons to look at mitochondria. And then what may be triggering some of these malfunctions also is, you know, bacterial infections, viruses, uh, genes to some extent. Uh, but most of the Alzheimer's is sporadic. You don't really inherit it. There are some, but it's not the common forms. Well, Dr. Kaminsky, I just really want to thank you for today. We greatly appreciate your insight and research on age-related neurologic disorders and environmental toxicants, and especially your work with our students at PCOM Georgia. To listen to past episodes of this podcast and to become a subscriber, visit our SoundCloud page, or find us on iTunes by searching Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm Jay Feldstein, and this has been PCOM Perspectives.